This episode of Intelligent Medicine is brought to you by Youthful Energy, providing you with a unique energy support of pure NT Factor. NT Factor is the only nutritional formula clinically proven to reduce fatigue, whatever the cause, age, illness, or just being run down. NT Factor from Nutritional Therapeutics repairs damaged cells and restores healthy bacteria in your digestive tract. Clinical trials have shown NT Factor reduces fatigue by almost half, and it even reverses some symptoms of aging. I've been taking NT Factor for years. With a 45-day money-back guarantee, you have nothing to lose. To order, call 800-982-9158, 800-982-9158, or go to ntfactor.com. That's ntfactor.com. Welcome back to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. We're talking about a great new book, Sickening, How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare and How We Can Repair It. Our guest, Dr. John Abramson, he's author of Overdosed America, and he's an authority on the pharmaceutical industry and a very uh, uh, profound critic of the direction that it's taken. Uh, as we found out in part one. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Abrams, you know, a case in point, and you devoted an entire chapter uh, on this uh, in your book, uh, statin drugs. Statin drugs uh, are being prescribed. Uh, I think they're possibly the most uh, uh, ubiquitously prescribed medications uh, in the United States and across the world. Uh, gradually, uh, the guidelines for prescribing statin drugs, there's been sort of diagnostic creep, you know, where we started treating people who had had heart attacks and strokes, uh, and then uh, we moved it to people who had high cholesterol. And now uh, we're sort of playing cholesterol limbo. We want to get cholesterol ultra low. We actually have a whole raft of new cholesterol-lowering medications on board because the patents are expiring on statin drugs, possibly. There's an ulterior motive since those drugs have become relatively cheap. Um, what say you? Well, what's AI is, uh, let's just cut to the chase and then I can tell you the details. Sure. People ask me, I, I know a little bit about statins and people ask me, should, should I take a statin? I've had a heart attack. Should I take a statin? I'm a healthy person. My doctor says I should take a statin. Should I take a statin? The, that's a, the wrong question. It's not a yes, no question. It's a what is the chance that you're going to benefit from statins? What's the chance you're going to have a side effect? And how does each individual person, each listener, how do you feel about taking a medicine uh, versus approaching uh, cardiovascular disease prevention from a lifestyle point of view? So the, not, the numbers are clear. If you've had a heart attack, you're in the secondary prevention group. You have to treat about 30 people who've had a heart attack for five years with a statin in order to prevent a single heart attack or stroke. That, that is now, the so-called NNT, the number needed to treat, which is it, which is actually a very, very interesting way of looking at it because often, I mean, we see ads and we're, as physicians, we're bombarded with ads that say, uh, you know, X drug lowers the risk of heart attack by 20% or 40%. We see like remarkable statistics. So how can we possibly withhold these, these life-saving treatments from our patients? 
Exactly. My favorite NNT uh, story is Trulicity is a diabetes drug that lowers blood sugar for people with type 2 diabetes. And Trulicity was advertising for a while. I haven't seen it lately, but they were advertising that Trulicity reduced the risk of heart disease in people with type 2 diabetes. And that was a reason why you should take it, because it would reduce your risk of heart disease. The fact was that you had to treat 323 people for three years with Trulicity. I think it's three years, uh, with Trulicity, uh, in order to prevent one heart attack or stroke. Um, and that's a ridiculously high number, a cost of millions of dollars. Uh, so if drug, ad, drug ads are here to stay, we'll get back to statins in a sec. Sure. But drug ads are here to stay. Good, good lawyers tell me that it's part of our um, constitution, that, it, that it's a, a right of free speech to be able to advertise drugs. I don't like that, but I accept their, inter- their interpretation uh, of the constitution. But they don't have to be here to stay misleadingly. And the FDA has set up rules where you have to say the side effects and you yep. have to say the positive effects, but they haven't set up rules that say you have to leave viewers with the correct impression of how much benefit the drug will have for them. And that would mean having the NNT in the drug ads. And that could certainly be done. And that it's not done is not because no one's thought of it. And um, it's because the power lies with the drug companies. Because if you to- had to tell people that um, you have, if, if you have had a heart attack, you have to, tr- you have to be treat 30 people in order for one person to avoid a cardiovascular event within the next five years, and you have to treat 80 people in order to prevent one cardiovascular death. Now, I want to go back and say clearly, Mm -hmm. as clearly as I can, this is not a yes-no answer. As a primary care physician, I would tell people those numbers, and if they said to me, Doc, what do you think? I'd say, well, if you don't have a prejudice against taking the drug, you may want to start taking the drug, and if you have side effects, you can quit and know that you're unlikely to get hurt by quitting, but not impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, so so th- that seems like a high number of people to have to treat, but it's it, it it's in the ballpark. For people who have not had heart disease, who are at so-called low risk of heart disease, meaning less than 20% risk over the next 10 years, you have to treat between 100 and 140 people for five years in order to prevent one non-fatal heart attack or stroke. And then it doesn't reduce, significantly reduce mortality. Excuse, excuse, and then there's the case yeah. uh, for women and people over 70. And I think a lot of the research has, you know, it's male-oriented, and uh, we look at uh, middle-aged men who we know are highly, highly at risk for car- heart attacks uh, and cardiovascular disease. But when it comes to women, it's a different story. And we're extrapolating data from men to women where maybe the results aren't as robust. And also for people over a certain age, you know, the, we see the spectacle of people who are 92 who are taking statin drugs. Does it make sense? Right. Even those who haven't had heart disease at age 92. Right. Um, no, it doesn't make sense. And it's not fair to doctors or patients to create those impressions. What's happened is a group called the Cholesterol Treatment Trialist Collaboration uh, centered in Oxford, Oxford University in England has made a Faustian bargain with the, uh, statin makers back in the early nineties, 94, I think their agreement was consummated. And the bargain was that the cholesterol treatment trialist collaborative 
would get access to all the data from the statin trials. They couldn't release it. They couldn't pass it on. They couldn't make it public. But they would get access to the data from all the trials, and then they would write out meta-analyses of, of all the trials, and nobody could mm. check their arithmetic because mm. they had the data, and the data weren't going to be released. Mm. The theory was, from the drug company's, the drug company's point of view, was that a rising tide would float all boats. So that by combining, allowing the CTT to combine all their data, they would increase the statistical power of the studies that each company had done. And then each company could take this, the, the supposed benefit of mm-hmm. statins based on this higher statistical power, and each company would sell more statins. Hmm. Well, it could have been a reasonable agreement if everybody played by the rules. Uh, but what happened is the CTT creates endpoints that are kind of a moving target. They said they were going to look at the effect of statins in women, but we didn't get primary care women, and they com- and they combined men and women, so we didn't get separate finding. They said they were going to look at uh, uh, statins for people over 75, but they combined secondary prevention and primary prevention, and they didn't tell us that the data probably doesn't show that there's benefit for people over 75. Right. And I know this firsthand, and uh, I know this far better than I would care to, because I was the lead author of an article that was published in the British Medical Journal in 2013 that we recalculated their numbers that where they claimed statins were beneficial for people uh, at risk of heart disease, less than 20% risk of heart disease. Um, they claimed that. But they changed the categories. They changed to uh, primary prevention instead of less than 20% and went back and forth. And when we straightened it out, we found that statins for people at low risk did not significantly reduce the risk of mortality from cardiovascular disease. And we published that article in the BMJ. And uh, in the process of that, we made a small mistake. We misinterpreted an article that looked at side effects, and we said that article showed there was 20% incidence of side effects, and it was a complicated study. But we had it a little bit wrong, and we issued a correction. Many other studies go up to 29% side effect, uh, uh, rate of side effects. So it wasn't like we had uh, created a lie or a misimpression about the drug. They but used we that to invalidate fact. your study? They, they, they accused you of... Uh, uh, you know, lack of scientific veracity there? Exactly. They demanded our article be retracted. Wow. They went in, they marked, uh, the leader marched into the editor of the BMJ's office and demanded our article be retracted because wow. of this uh, tangential and minor error. So she did a very uh, rational and brave thing. She appointed um, a panel of six experts, independent experts, to look at the situation and decide whether our article should be retracted. And the experts voted six to nothing that uh, our article should not be retracted. Uh, this went on for about six months, and it, it's, it was pretty intense and unpleasant to be under attack for six months mm-hmm. and not be 100% confident how the experts would view our data. But well, you went against the narrative data. in a very, very powerful industry. I mean, the economics uh, are just enormous stacked against you there. Exactly. 
and and the CTT at Oxford is like they claim total hegemony over statin knowledge. And we were showing that they were um, a little bit loose with their categorization of patients. Mm-hmm. So now you're you're an outside you're how, an outsider. Uh, you know you're not someone who is on the. Uh, payroll of uh, pharmaceutical industry, you know, they don't uh, send you on uh, junkets or trips or pay you to do presentations at conferences. Uh, but a lot of the people who write these articles, uh, they got skin in the game. There, There's a conflict of interest, right? Exactly. Exactly. And docs, good, hardworking doctors who are trying their best to do the right thing for their patients, They've been taught to listen to people when they say they're an associate professor from an, you know, a prestigious medical school or a professor from a prestigious medical school. The working docs who are out there doing God's work trying to help people live healthier, better lives, they've got to believe these people. They don't have time. When you ask me, why did I leave medicine and go on this second career? It's because you can't study this stuff as a practicing doctor. Mm -hmm. It's more than a full-time job. Yes. And I got to the point where I said, I need to study this stuff. You know, I got to figure out what's going on. But real docs, good docs, good people who are trying their best, they can't possibly straighten this out. And that's why I do what I do, why I wrote Overdosed America and why I wrote Sickening. Indeed. So recently, uh, there have been some attempts at reform. There was the Inflation uh, Reduction Act, uh, which introduced some uh, some caps on uh, drug pricing, uh, much uh, to the chagrin of the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, but is it enough? Or are these just, uh, you know, symbolic gestures that don't really add up to much? Well, can I make a minor change in your introduction? Yeah, to the please, question? please. Much to the faux chagrin of the pharmaceutical ah, industry. Okay. So what did they do? They put a cap. We they did five things. Hopefully we can talk about each one. But the one you raise uh, first is they put a cap on the uh, amount of the price increases that are allowed to be no higher than inflation, and uh, the price base is I think 2021. So that sounds like a really good thing because yeah. drug prices have been going up 10 to 20 percent, uh, way higher than uh, consumer uh, cost of living. Right. And that sounds like it's a, a great major thing driver of inflation. It. So it, it's in the spirit right. of, the, right. of the legislation. Yeah. Great thing. Really, really clips the pharmaceutical industry's wings, except there's a little fact that you need to know when you look at the importance of limiting cost increases to inflation. The median price of a new drug, meaning half new drugs cost more and half less, in 2020 and 2021, the median price of a new drug was $150,000 a year. $150,000 a year was the median price. Wait, so they that, don't need to that raise. That doesn't sound like very much. I mean, I, I thought, you know, typically we hear statistics like it, it costs hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to put a drug through, uh, you know, the, the clinical trials and, you know, FDA approval and all the rigmarole that's involved in introducing a new medication. Right. I'm not talking about the total income from the drug. I'm talking about the median price that each patient is charged. Oh, oh, there you go. For a okay. new drug oh is $150,000 a year. Okay. Okay. So when wow. when the drug industry says, "Gee, you're going to kill us because we can't raise our prices any more than inflation." 
man, your half of your drugs are starting out at one hundred and fifty thousand per person per year. Whoa. And, and, you can and, make a buck and, doing that. And recently, there was the very controversial approval of uh, a drug for Alzheimer's disease, uh, first of its kind, the so-called plaque-busting drug, uh, Aduhelm. But it was approved uh, with a great deal of resistance, uh, even from some folks in uh, the FDA. I think there were some resignations around that. The three people, uh, a colleague that I know well is one of them, three people uh, resigned from the advisory committee meeting because the advisory committee meeting's recommendation was not taken. The drug failed its clinical trials. The clinical drug trials were actually stopped because they, people weren't getting better. And uh, through the back door, they got it approved on uh, on emergency use authorization mm -hmm. because uh, the drug reduced the amount of amyloid plaque mm -hmm. in Alzheimer's patients' that's brains. A, that's what's called a surrogate marker. In other words, that, it doesn't tell you whether the patient's better off five years down the line. Exactly. And the FDA had written an internal memo in 2018. This happened in 2021, I think. In 2018, the FDA had written an internal memo that showed that 27 clinical trials had looked at the drugs that reduced the amount of amyloid plaque in the brain, and not one of them showed a clinical benefit. Not okay. one of them. So this was not a random mistake. Right. I mean, that, that whole line of, uh, of drug development uh, has seemed to reach a dead end and crash and burn because the, the amyloid theory was based, uh, there's been a new revelation that is based on a paper that actually had fraudulent data back in 2006. And uh, the whole underpinnings of that approach uh, may be faulty. Exactly. And then this memo had collected the 27 studies that tested the fraudulent theory and found that it was wrong. And yet the FDA approved this drug. Now, this was a bridge too far. I've got to give credit to the medical establishment because uh, the, the manufacturer priced this drug at $56,000 a year, a drug that had uh, minimal evidence of clinical benefit and significant evidence of harm with brain swelling and brain bleeding. And this was a bridge too far, even for the medical establishment. <laughs> right. Which usually, you know, goes along to get along. Yep. 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 So the other, uh, issues in the, um, in the Inflation Reduction Act are price negotiation. Now, the drug companies are telling us if they have to negotiate the price of drugs, um, there's going to be, uh, they use the word nuclear winter, uh, for drug innovation. Americans are going to be deprived right. of new drugs. The perennial argument. So, right. <clears throat> So the price negotiations are not what they appear to be. In uh, France and Germany and Canada and many other countries, there are price negotiations for drugs, which means when a new drug is approved, it's priced based on its actual clinical contribution compared to other best therapies available. That's price negotiation up front. This price negotiation doesn't occur until a drug has been out for nine years or 13 years, nine mm. years for congen con uh, conventional drug, 13 years for a biosimilar, for a uh, uh, biologic drug. Um, so the price negotiation only takes hold uh, at the end of the drug's life, not the beginning. Wow. And most importantly, we are the only country, the wealthy country, that doesn't have health technology assessment. So when new drugs come out, 
it's been shown the German Health Technology Assessment uh, Agency that that looks at the cost and effectiveness of drugs uh, determined that one out of four new drugs that comes out um, that's approved by the drug regulatory authorities, uh, one out of four actually makes a significant contribution beyond conventional therapy. But we don't have that. So what the so-called price negotiation says is we'll let the drug companies make their claims that their drug is better than other drugs without any agency having uh, approved that claim for nine or 13 years. And and if no biosimilar drug is going to be coming out within the next two years and they um, only allow uh, 10 drugs in the uh, in the first year and that'll go up to 20 drugs Um so uh, for to be available for price negotiation. So what's happening is the uh, the uh, Congressional Budget Office calculated how many new drugs Americans are going to be deprived of under these conditions. And they found that over 30 years, there will be 10 fewer new drugs wow. over 30 years. That's, and that's only trivial. one out of four it's a of those drop in the bucket. It's yeah. trivial. Yes, but only one out of four of those 10 drugs, only two and a half of those 10 drugs are actually going to be superior to other therapies huh. that are available. Wow. So we're going to, for all the, the fear mongering that the pharmaceutical industry is doing about uh, snuffing out innovation because of this uh, price negotiation part of the Inflation Reduction Act, it's going to be two and a half drugs over 30 years that Americans are going to lose. Wow. This is going to have to be a lightning round because there's a very extensive uh, set of chapters in your book about uh, possible solutions. But, uh, you know, where should we be going from here to, you know, correct these outrages? Yeah. So so there's two ways to approach the solutions, and we need to do them both at the same time. The United States needs to have price regulation of drugs and just don't listen to the drug companies complaining that they're going to shut down their innovation. Their job is to make money. They'll advertise uh, and create fear as much as they need to in order to make as much money as possible. We need price negotiations and we need health technology assessment. And if we get both of those things, price negotiations and health technology assessment, it will mean that the drug companies have to make better drugs because the drugs are actually going to have to be superior to existing drugs if they want to make the money. So we need price negotiations. We need health technology assessment. That's number one. Um, number two is that there's so many things that need to be done that are obvious, like like price negotiations and health technology assessment, and yet they don't get done. And where some of these things have to do with uh, pharmaceutical regulatory policy, most of them have to do with the distribution of power in society. And that's where people like you come in, where you are giving me voice now to explain to people that what the pharmaceutical industry is claiming about the amount of money they need to make in order to provide us with better health just is not so. And people, uh, non-medical people and medical people have to start to understand that this game is rigged in favor of the pharmaceutical and device manufacturers and their investors. 
and this is going to destroy our country. This is costing us $1.6 billion a year. That's like 10 times better than the uh, proposal was for Build Back Better. It's a huge uh, drag on the economy, and 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 it's, it's a, not improving the health of Americans, so our productivity is declining. And that's exactly right. Angus Deaton, a, a Nobel laureate, said it's a fabulous way to transfer wealth from from working Americans to the wealthy. It's not a very good way to improve their health. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. yeah. What about just the the way that we uh, publish and disseminate uh, research? That really needs to be reformed because it's, to some extent, it's it's pay to play, and it really isn't, uh, you know, exposing the benefits of lifestyle and uh, diet and so on, uh, which which may actually trump the benefits of certain medications. That's exactly right. And really, I was talking about price before when I was talking about the. Uh, pharmaceutical policy, price negotiations, and health technology assessment. But a fact that virtually no doctors understand, this is shocking that people don't understand this. When a clinical trial is submitted to uh, a journal and is peer-reviewed and published, that peer-reviewed randomized controlled trial becomes evidence-based medicine. That's what doctors should do. People don't understand that the peer reviewers and the medical journal editors don't get to see the actual data. It's non-transparent. Yeah. The the drug company only submits the brief the top summary line. of the data. The top line, right. The top line. Mm. And the peer reviewers don't get to look at the data and evaluate for themselves independently whether this report is complete and accurate. So there's no way that doctors, what doctors think they know is based on company-manipulated presentations of data that are non-transparent. This is craziness. This is no way to run a healthcare system. Indeed. Okay. Well, there's a lot more uh, in the book Sickening. It is a very detailed indictment of, as the subtitle says, how Big Pharma broke American healthcare and with tangible solutions on how to repair it. Uh, I want to congratulate you because uh, this has become uh, a passion of yours and a crusade. And I think in, in as much as you were helping people on a, a one-to-one basis in your practice, uh, I think you've leveraged your, your skills and your abilities and your experience uh, to have a much more pervasive influence on American healthcare. So congratulations on, on your new book and on the direction you're taking. Uh, is there a website well, also where people can learn more? Um, the, I don't have a, I don't have a website. I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to confess. I'm, I'm a geek, and I like figuring this stuff out and writing it up. If you look on Amazon.com, you can buy your books anywhere. But if you look on Amazon.com, you'll get a real good idea of what the book is and what the reviews are. Um, so, and I, I want to congratulate you, Dr. Hoffman. This is a very difficult message to get out. Many, many people in the media don't have the courage to let the story be told straight up. And I want to thank you for the opportunity to do that. Well, it's my pleasure. And it's absolutely in the wheelhouse. Uh, part of our mission statement at Intelligent Medicine is to uh, take a critical look, not just at uh, uh, the pharmaceutical industry, but also, you know, when merited, uh, people who are purveying natural therapies that uh, don't aren't up to snuff. So in, in, in mm-hmm. conclusion, I just want a, a very nice uh, on the book jacket, 
uh, kind of sums it up. Uh, one of your uh, MD colleagues, editor-in-chief of the Journal of the American Medical Association, uh, formerly writes, Dr. Abramson's book is a scholarly tour de force that should be read by all prescribers, researchers, publishers of that research, and users of pharmaceutical drugs. That would include <laughs> just about everybody in the USA over the age of, uh, well, there is no age limit because <laughs> little kids are getting drugs. Thank you very right. much for joining us. Really appreciate it, Dr. John Abramson. My, pl my pleasure. Thank you. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. As an Intelligent Medicine listener, you know how important it is to ensure that your supplements are genuine, safe, and effective. But vetting your sources and tracking down the exact products you need can be a hassle. That's why I'm inviting you to browse my online supplement dispensary at drhoffmanstore.com. We stock only the highest quality supplements, some of which are very hard to find elsewhere. The very same supplements I prescribe to my patients and take myself. My specially curated professional-grade supplements are fulfilled via the Fullscript network. Fullscript is the safest and most convenient way to purchase my medical-grade supplements. Buying through Fullscript offers fast shipping, optional refill reminders, a mobile-friendly site. It's safe, secure, and HIPAA-compliant and offers world-class support. Just go to drhoffmanstore.com to sign up for your free Fullscript account. You'll also receive free shipping on all of your store orders. That's drhoffmanstore.com. drhoffmanstore.com.